I think everyone should pause every day and kind of remember that it is so effing bizarre. Hi, I'm Cosmo Calloway. And I'm Eliana Stanford, and you're listening to Full Steam Ahead. Full Steam Ahead is a student-led podcast where we talk with thought leaders in the STEAM field to pick apart their origins in order to further understand the motivations behind their accomplishments in the hopes that they can provide fuel for the next generation of STEAM students. In today's episode, we're joined with Avis Lang, writer and editor at the American Museum of Natural History. She earned both her Master's in History of Art and Bachelor's in English at the University of Michigan. Avis is also an associate at the Hayden Planetarium, which holds space exhibits and other astronomy-related shows. Additionally, Avis taught fine arts and women's studies at the University of British Columbia, Simon Fraser University, the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design, the Banff Center, and the University of Lethbridge. Avis has also consistently worked in tandem with Neil deGrasse Tyson on collaboration publications, such as the Natural History Museum's Universe column, and most recently as the co-author of Accessory to War, The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. If it's not already clear, Avis is incredibly diligent in her work, and we're so excited to have her on today. But without further ado, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Avis. My pleasure, my pleasure. <laughs> well, first off, Avis, how has your quarantine been? Have you picked up any new hobbies? Are you working on anything new? What's going on? <laughs> Actually, um, I... My, uh, I wouldn't call this a hobby. I've washed a lot of dishes because my husband's hobby during the pandemic is to cook, um, which started out as um, a kind of concern about uh, even getting takeout food from restaurants. So he thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cook more than I, I usually do. And then it fell to me to uh, wash all the dishes. But other, other than that, um, I resurrected a very old uh, practice of mine, which is sewing. So early on in the pandemic, when there were no masks available for medical people, I was one of those people making masks and <laughs> finding somebody to distribute them. Um, that was a pretty interesting project. And then I started sewing masks for my friends and so on. And this, here's a little tiny detail. You know, the, the elastic that uh, attaches the mask around your ear. Mm -hmm. Well, early in the pandemic, it was almost unavailable except for a really crazy price on Amazon. So I discovered searching the internet, that you could use uh, ponytail elastics for the earpieces. So the initial masks I made had those ponytail elastics. Um, anyway, eventually I got hold of normal elastic and, uh, you know, and <clears throat> you don't want to hear any more about this. So there you have, <laughs> there you have my, <laughs> my entire pandemic experience. Oh, well, I'm interested. How many, how many masks do you think you made over quarantine? <clears throat> oh, um, I'm sure I made well over a hundred Wow. I also was one of these people writing postcards during the election. 
which I can't call that a hobby exactly, but there, there were there were a lot of people writing political postcards. And so I signed on to this group called Flip the West and ended up writing postcards for Alaska and for Arizona. And anyway, it, it, you know, one does find ways to pass the time when you're locked in your apartment. That's it's great because all of your hobbies seem to be really art oriented because even like your natural love for humanities, it comes out in what you do for fun, which is so amazing, which kind of leads into like what I was wondering is how did you first get into like exploring that intersection of science and humanities with astrophysics and your literature? Well, um, unlike some of the other people you have interviewed for your podcast, I was not driven from uh, of a very young age to have anything to do with science. Um, in fact, I was growing up at a time and within a sort of, I suppose, subculture and within a family in which the boy was going to be in the sciences and the girl was going to be in art. And so my brother became a theoretical physicist and I became the artist and the writer. And I went to art school and like that. And I never thought really much about science from one year to the next. I never, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to, I never took a physics course. I never took an astronomy course. I never took a math course in college. I took, his, I took uh, chemistry because there was a science requirement. Um, what I did do, however, and I think this is sort of a, a kind of life guideline that I would like to impart to people much younger than myself. Um, what I did do is I learned how to think and how to read very, very carefully. And if there was something I didn't get the first time round, I read it again. And this may sound really basic. This is how I was able to move from being an English major to teaching art history to um, working with Neil deGrasse Tyson. And uh, more generally, to working as an editor on um, uh, science uh, publications. Here's the thing, if you are willing to pay attention to every single word and you read it and you read it again and you read it again and then you check on the internet for somebody else's explanation of whatever the concept is, whether it's um, the nature of dark matter or the nature of the ocean currents that drive our weather or climate change or the behavior of slime molds heading for the nearest food source. If you are willing, 
to read the text until you get it, then if you are literate and if you are numerate, all you have to do is really be able to add, subtract, you know, divide and multiply. If you are willing to put in the effort and the concentration, you can branch out into multiple fields. And this, this is what journalists must do. This is what editors and copy editors must do. You have a text in front of you that somebody else wrote. You don't know a thing about this topic. And here is this text. And depending on the publication, you have to make sure that the explanations are clear. And so, and so I ended up become, well, I mean, it's a long story, but um, I left the world of art history and curating exhibitions. I moved from Canada to New York City, not because I was ambitious, but for personal reasons. And because my, uh, shall we say, expertise that in Canada made me kind of one of, you know, three people, my expertise was, I was just a dime a dozen here in New York City. So rather than teach an entire course for a pittance at Nowheresville College, I decided to kind of move into the realm of editing. I ended up editing everything from an encyclopedia of soap operas to um, legal material on the Smith-Hawley Tariff Act of whatever, 1935 or whatever it was. And I, I gained the capacity simply because I was willing to read, 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 whatever it was, however many times I had to read it, willing to read unfamiliar stuff and make sure that not only were the commas in the right place and did the subject and verb agree, but that the explanation was comprehensible and orderly. And so, and so I ended up fortunately, and this is because of a personal connection, which is what so much life, <laughs> so much of life depends on, unfortunately, unfortunately, um, because of a personal connection, uh, I got uh, hooked into Natural History Magazine which was edited by the sister-in-law of someone I had gone to college with. I became a sort of glorified copy editor. And suddenly there I am reading about slime molds and ocean currents and so on. And then, and then in 2001, as you know, uh, we had the disaster of 9-11 many uh, large nonprofit institutions, which would include 
the Museum of Natural History. Many nonprofit organizations uh, went into crisis mode in terms of their financial base. The museum had been the home of natural history, the home and the host of Natural History Magazine since its inception, um, you know, more than a century earlier. And it offloaded Natural History Magazine, this venerable publication, it offloaded it to a private group of people involved in science publication. All, almost all of the full-time editors took the opportunity to resign and take their pensions and retire. And there I was uh, on staff and I had worked with Neil a little bit. And I guess he said to the new editor, well, okay, uh, I need an editor. Oh, all right, so uh, give me Avis Lang. She, she and I can work together. <laughs> So now Neil was not yet the super high profile celebrity that he is today. And he had a monthly column called Universe, which appeared, although not totally monthly, mostly monthly, that appeared in Natural History Magazine. But he was also at that time becoming very, very active with the uh, building of the new planetarium, the design and building and oversight. And we worked well together. He understood what I did not know. I was totally clear on what I did not know and I read his work as a total lay person wanting to understand. So we got along, it was fine. And then he got a little busy. So he was supposed to come up with a column, you know, for next month. And he sort of just somehow didn't manage to come up with the column. And then it happened again, and then it happened again. Well, okay, I am now Neil's editor. The editor's role is to make sure the bloody column exists. <laughs> so I had in my uh, earlier career as um an essayist on contemporary art, I had been in the habit of interviewing many, many, many artists. And what I did was I would transcribe the interview myself with an old fashioned transcription machine, which has a foot pedal and ear earphones. And like, anyway. like a stenograph? Yes. Okay. An old, 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 old. Those are, are incredible to machine. see in action. Yes, yes. So, And I had learned how to do this because at a certain point in my life, I had to make a little money. And I was, I was actually transcribing 
accident reports uh, dictated by a private detective. <laughs> like you didn't know that's, that this was what yeah, you were signing well, up for? <laughs> uh, anyway, that's, that's, so, so it occurred to me that maybe I could interview Neil talking on, babbling away about whatever topic he chose. I would transcribe exactly what he said, and then I would produce a rough draft, and then he would work on it. Because, you know, the writer, I mean, it's kind of threatening to have your blank screen or your blank page and have to come up with something. So I thought, okay, okay, I'll be the one who comes up with something, and then he'll have, you know, what to work with. Well, this was okay, except that he still needed a little prodding. So what I did was I produced the first draft of the article, not just, you know, something based on what he said, but an actual first draft. And then I started having to um, travel around the internet to fact check certain things and make sure I understood them. And then I had to, you know, organize the article in such a way that the reader would be drawn in, blah, 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 blah. The end result was that Neil and I developed this working routine that it went very well. I would produce the first draft. He would tear it apart. It was a wonderful thing. It's collaboration at its best, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, if you respectfully state your case to Neil, he will listen. So one does not say, this is crap. This is I completely uh, incomprehensible. No, you say, when you say blah, 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 do you mean X or Y? You, you really have to think about the queries. Anyway, as I say, we developed this little shtick between us um, that worked very, very well. And a few years into this, I'm sitting in his office and he sort of raises one eyebrow and turns his head to the side and looks at me and he says, you don't want to be an editor forever, do you? And I, I, I have no idea what I said. The upshot <laughs> of this, <laughs> the, what was on his mind was, I think we should write a book. And that's the book that 15 or 16 or however many years later became Accessory to War, which is a tome. It has... I don't know, more than a hundred pages of footnotes. It is the biggest project I ever worked on in my life. And I'm sure I will never work on anything that big again, but this is, this 
emerged from the confidence that we developed in each other that we could work together and we could surmount communication problems and problems of uh, content and problems of emphasis. And this is a very political work um, and our politics are not totally identical. So it, it is every step of the way, it was navigating the, um, the differences and the similarities and trying to remain respectful and clear and accountable for one's own point of view. Mm -hmm. So that's an extremely long answer <laughs> to whatever that question was. I can't remember. We'll, we'll but... <laughs> take it. Um, I, I mean, that, that sounds incredible. And I'm sure, you know, Neil kind of just speaks in his own and maybe even thinks in, in his own like language of, of astrophysics. Was it ever tricky to translate that language into, like you said, the language of the layperson? Well, the fact is, Neil is a fabulous explicator, and he has spent years and years and years talking to lay people. So he's not the kind of scientist who um, is oblivious to the possible forms of confusion uh, that uh, someone who knows nothing or almost nothing uh, would be uh, subject to. But I immersed myself in this material and in his way of articulating it and in his you know, jokes and his certain of his language patterns, slowly what began to dawn on me was the kind of the very, very fundamental themes underlying the specifics that we may have been discussing. So, you know, the question of an orbit or the issue of some bizarre particle like a muon or the, uh, the nature of propulsion in a spacecraft, for me, at a certain point, what really dawned on me was the magnitude and duration of the universe. And once you have internalized what it means that the universe we inhabit, and we inhabit, I mean, you can't even say a corner. We don't inhabit a corner. We inhabit such a sub-microscopic speck of space that you, you must grasp what time and space are in order to find meaning. It's not just the facts. 
it's not just oh um the sun is 93 million miles from earth it's not just the fact it is can you conceptualize enormous distances can you conceptualize that our solar system has a kind of limit beyond which other forces are at play can you conceptualize what a galaxy is what some other star at a distance of 500 light years, can you grasp how small we are and what extraordinary randomness has given rise to us and the phenomenon that we are a species that has come up with this technology on which you and I are communicating. It's such a level of, it's so remarkable really that I think everyone should pause every day and kind of remember that it is so effing bizarre what our species has come up with and that we really haven't even been on this planet for very long at all. The universe that we know is, you know, call it 14 billion years old. Some scientists speculate there are other universes. There are multiverses that uh, you and I <laughs> exist in some form elsewhere. There's another, you know, cosmo. I mean, this stuff gets really bizarre. Um, but, uh, you know, there is math that underpins it. There are uh, detectors that can detect uh, all forms of radiation from the very, 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 very distant ancient universe. There, it's not just babble, you know, what, the, what these people are thinking about. For me, uh, because, you know, I can't, I have no way of following the math. Um, I have also, and I admit this, I have never looked through a telescope. For me, it is all conceptual and I'm fine with that now somebody is going to say oh what are you crazy <laughs> let me show you my telescope but it's okay I I it's not um you know I I haven't looked through a telescope but I have lain on the ground in the countryside of British Columbia 50 years ago and seen the starry sky. And that's all I see. To be convinced of the existence and depth and breadth of our universe. So 
there you go. <laughs> I, I love it. I just, I keep thinking about how you're saying everything is so like you love existing in this conceptual universe of your own in your own head. And I just, I can't help but think about how abstract and bizarre it is that we've come up with these political systems, this militaristic system and connecting it to like kind of the abstract nature of how we think about space. So that being said, I have, I've read the introduction and dabbled in some of the pages of your book, but for those who haven't yet um, read Accessory to War, um, one of the biggest takeaways is how strong the relationship is between the space industry and the military industrial complex. So could you tell us a little bit more about that connection? Well, okay. Let us jump way, way back in history <clears throat> before we uh, jump into the space industry. Um, since time immemorial, an understanding of the cycles of the heavens has been a key to the maintenance of power, whether it was um, being able to predict the seasons or to navigate uh, the Indian Ocean or to navigate the South Pacific, to know the sky and its cycles was to know where you were and uh, as navigation developed and observation developed, to know where you were going. There would have been no uh, um, exploration of the planet if people had not figured out how to track their, uh, their ship's passage on the basis of what they saw above their heads with the aid of instruments and, and so on. And as, uh, well, you know full well that our species has, uh, is um, quite aggressive. We have um, uh, uh, all two uh, prominent tendencies to make war and to oppress others uh, to colonize and to grab the riches of other lands and so on. And over the centuries, um, these uh, tendencies have <laughs> only gotten worse, only gotten broader, only drawn in more and more resources, money, expertise, uh, and uh, strategic planning. And one of the concepts um, inherent in the military thinking of earlier centuries was that you wanted to attain the high ground from which you would be able to see better and better. So if you gained the, the hill, you would see the enemy troops as they moved. And when Galileo first, well, I won't say perfected, first developed a kind of reasonable uh, telescope and he presented it to the uh, Senate of Venice, 
they uh, they went up to uh, they climbed a tower so he could demonstrate um, his new device, and he wasn't. <laughs> I mean, you've heard of Galileo, I hope, who uh, we know him because he uh, you know opened up the heavens a bit more, but um, the way he was selling. Uh, the uh, the Doge's uh, the uh, the uh, Venetian Senate on his device was you will be able to see the enemy from afar you will be able to see their ships you will be able to plan etc. So the idea of the high ground gaining the hill gaining the distance gaining the oversight and overview of the enemy and seeing from afar uh, where the enemy was coming from and going, how the enemy was equipped and so on. This became a big issue. Well, you can't get higher ground than space. <laughs> so the idea of waging war by um, gaining control of space became, you know, an issue of the 20th century. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of writing about this. Actually, there's this wonderful quote um, from President Kennedy, who oversaw the, the, the real kind of jump starting of the space program that ended up you know, in America, uh, Americans stepping foot on the moon. Although I have to say the Russians were first in many, many, many ways. The Soviet Union was first in many instances, but yes, the Americans did uh, uh, step foot on the moon first. So Kennedy in 1962, giving a, a speech uh, in Texas said this, Space science, like nuclear science and all technology, has no conscience of its own. Whether it becomes a force for good or ill depends on man, meaning humanity. And at that time, in the American mind, or in the mind of the cold warriors fixated on the vanquishing of communism and fixated on American leadership and American domination, which are terms that we have heard ever since and that were repeated again and again and again by Trump and his ilk and have not vanished from the uh, political vocabulary in the Biden administration either. What we see is this, um, this focus on domination and having an orbiting space station permanently orbiting with uh, cosmonauts or astronauts or taikonauts on board is a vision that uh, has persisted and has 
um, uh, has kind of shaped uh, the space programs of the major space powers. Russia had the first space station. The U.S. Uh, kind of, uh, uh, well, Ronald Reagan first presented the idea of a space station in, I think it was 19, 1984. And this was going to be a multi national effort, and it is, it has space agencies of Canada and Russia and the US and the EU and Japan, but it's heavily American. And a recent effort uh, now to um, set up outposts on the moon and set up outposts on asteroids in order uh, to mine them. This too is an American idea and it's called Artemis. This program is called Artemis. And again, it's America wanting to lead and wanting to dominate. And what I didn't read to you from the quote from John F. Kennedy was the the follow-up to that quote was only, only if America is leading this, will the uh, conquest of space be a force for good? Uh, I cannot buy that idea. I mean, I cannot buy the idea altogether of domination, of dominance, and of a single country leading anything. To me, this is a recipe for disaster. I I totally agree. I think that honestly just kind of perpetuates almost American nationalism in the sense that like domination by any other country would be bad, but because we're American, we can do it and it's good. Like that's a totally outlandish idea. And that I think there are a lot of fears to be associated with what kind of the advancing relationship between you know, uh, the military and space industry might be. Although, of course, like every single year, they're they're creating incredible things together. Um, I, I know you talked about how like kind of increasingly over the years, we've kind of seen how sometimes that can be used for bad. Um, do you have any fears in particular for like, you know, what you don't want to see happen? Well, uh, what I don't want to see happen is the perpetuation of this notion of a single country dominating. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about the creation of uh, what, what some of us can see in the night sky every 90 minutes or so, um, the International Space Station, which orbits Earth at about uh, 250 miles up. Um, as I said, this is uh, uh, this is a collaborative endeavor uh, by a number of space agencies. But but early on, China wanted to be a part of this, and they made a few overtures and dropped some like really heavy hints, and the U.S. basically vetoed the inclusion of China. Now, as we, uh, I hope, know, China 
having, uh, you know, been forced out in the cold and also committed to the development of its own economy and its own people, China has gone ahead and um, mastered space to the extent that they have a long list and they are going down that list one by one by one by one. And they are working on their own space station now. And it is not, it is not a collaboration. It is their space station, but it is set up so that the uh, um, spacecraft from a whole range of other nations will be able to dock, meaning a sort of uh, land and find a parking space uh, on their space station. So China, as, as it is doing with uh, the vaccine and using vaccine diplomacy, um, as um, it is doing with, with a host of programs uh, in other countries, China is using the space station, not on, its own space station, not only to uh, develop a a, the profile of dominance and leadership and success and preeminence, but also to bring other nations along. My concern about all of these things, whether it's what the United States does, what Russia does, what China does, my concern is bound up in the idea that we are a species essentially locked on our planet. Fantasies of colonizing Mars, somehow <laughs> creating an atmosphere, terraforming, I mean, give me a break. We are here. We are here and we have to live together not one dominating another. We have to live together as a species with all the other species that make our lives possible. The insect pollinators, the worms under the, under the soil. Uh, we have to live in a, an ecologically sound, sociologically functional world or will go the, the way of all things. We will exter exterminate ourselves. And so back to this notion of collaboration, frankly, I think my little personal experiment endeavor with Neil, two people, really we, are pretty different. <laughs> Two people finding a way to work together. This, this is a microcosm of what must happen internationally. And I would like to include an up, upbeat piece of news, which is not found on the front page of any paper I looked at today, but which I came across on the home page of uh, my tertiary email where I have all my junk email sent. 
China and the United States have just come to an agreement to fight climate change together, together, to limit the carbon e uh, emissions, to kind of use the Paris Climate Accords, to essentially cooperate, collaborate, if, if not collaborate, at least cooperate in the quest which will make our planet habitable rather than uninhabitable by the time you guys are my age. So this is a very hopeful sign. And I think only through collaboration on things like climate change, on things like a, um, a global availability of a COVID vaccine, of anti-malarial medicine, of you know, uh, processing seawater to make it potable. Only by doing things like that, our is our species going to make it through really very perilous times. So, okay, that's my my little screed. <laughs> That is so topical. I just read, um, have you read this one, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Harari? Uh, no, but I know of it. I love that book. And he has a whole chapter on the three things that we need to work together for increasing globalization, nuclear warfare, technological advances, and climate change. So I'm so happy to hear about the China-US um, agreement because... That's one step closer to something that is really, really, really important. And just kind of as we're wrapping up, I wanted to give you the opportunity if you have any upcoming projects and stuff that you are working on that you can give us like a little sneak peek into maybe. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, since you ask, since you ask, um, when, ex when we wrote Accessory to War, we originally had a science fiction epilogue and the editor wisely, wisely, the editor vetoed it. So I have rewritten that epilogue um, a scores of times. It is now half the length, it is completely different. And that former epilogue, which is no longer an epilogue, is going to be published as a science fiction short story in a small literary magazine uh, published in the Pacific Northwest called Orca, which is, you know, the name of the, the killer whales are called orcas. Um, and this, so I happen to be quite excited about this. Um, I used to write short stories. I got one published, I don't know, like 20 years ago. Here's another short story. And I am thinking um, in my dotage, I think I'm going to work on more short stories. So that's it. That's my little sneak peek. That's so, that's so exciting. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with us today. It was a blast. I sometimes can just get totally lost when talking about, in the best way possible, talking about kind of space and the beautiful conceptualization of 
the entire universe around us. I think it's just kind of the most fun thing to, to, to lose yourself in. Um, and a big thank you to our audience, too. We great, greatly appreciate all of you tuning in. We hope to see you next time on the Full Steam Ahead podcast. And if you can, be sure to follow the Full Steam Ahead podcast on Instagram for the latest updates, as well as maybe ask some questions or two and see if they're featured in the next episode. Thanks so much.